Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Welcome, felons, friends, and freedom lovers. Thank you once again for joining me for yet another edition of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different. I do have a very interesting guest who has a a really, really shocking story to share with you, a shocking story about injustice that he experienced personally as a federal prisoner in the criminal justice system. And I don't want to go into a story right now because I want him to tell you the story. And I'm going to introduce my guest in a minute here. But before I do that, I want uh, everyone who's listening to know where they can find the show notes page. You can find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash FF26. This is episode number 26 of Felony Friday. So that is where the FF26 comes from. I guess today is Aaron Comey. First, I do want to say this particular episode would not have been possible, would not have happened without a previous guest that Mark interviewed on the show, Alex Merced. And Alex, of course, is the uh, Libertarian candidate for Senate in New York who appeared. Mark interviewed him on episode 218. And Alex notified us of Aaron's story and uh, said that Aaron would be a great person to have on the show. And as I alluded to earlier, Aaron does have a very powerful story to share with you today. Aaron spent more than a decade in federal prison without ever having a criminal conviction. So let that sink in for a minute and we'll get the whole story and backstory to that. Aaron, thank you. Thank you for coming on Felony Friday. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's, it's great to have you here and uh, it's great to talk with you. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to you know, dive into your story and learn more about it. But before we get to that, and I haven't really given many specifics on your story yet for a reason, because I want you to tell it in your own words. Right. But before we do tell your story, if we could just get a little background on you, just so the Felony Friday audience can, can have an idea of, of where you came from, how you grew up. Can you share where you were born and where you were raised? I was born and raised in New York, uh, Bronx. I was actually raised as Joe's witness. So very devout Joe's witness. So much of my life growing up was uh, very structured, very disciplined. And, you know, I never gotten in trouble. And I lived a very upstanding type of lifestyle. Eventually, I wound up leaving the religion. And um, I had some mental issues that I was going through, some delusions. And I ultimately, delusions are what led to the my whole situation. Let's just back up for a minute. But before we get into that, I do want to ask you just a couple questions about Jehovah's Witnesses, because I, for one, don't know a whole lot about the religion. And I'm sure maybe some of my listeners do, but probably a lot don't as well. Right. What really does a, you know separates a, a Jehovah's Witness from you know, a typical or like a, a Protestant or a Catholic or, or those other branches of, uh, of Christianity. What's the main difference there? Well, with Joel's Witnesses, it's 24-7. It's not a matter of just, you know, going to church once a week. They're very, it's very involved. Everything revolves around scriptures and living according to scriptures. So like, um, let's say in a typical week growing up, we would actually have five separate meetings. And in addition to those meetings, we'd have to prepare for each of those meetings beforehand, um, as well as we would go door to door to preach to people about the Bible and the coming end of days. Additionally, 
some of the moral restrictions. Joe's Witnesses don't celebrate uh, any holidays, don't celebrate birthdays. And so there's a lot of things that set Joe's Witnesses apart from uh, other religions, including the fact that Joe's Witnesses are encouraged not to socialize excessively with non-believers. Okay, so you, you said you grew up in New York. You moved to Milwaukee, is that correct, at, at one point? Yes, I did. How old were you when you moved then? That was about 1997, so I was 18. Yeah, I was 18 years old. And was that to, to get out of the Jehovah's Witness Church, or was that something separate? That was something separate. I had been living with my father in, in New York. He wound up moving, and he basically moved without me. He says, uh, I had to find someplace else to live. So that's when my brother, who was living in Milwaukee, stepped in and told me to, to come up and live with him. Okay. I mean, you talked about some of the mental issues that led to uh, the incident that ultimately led to you spending a decade in federal prison. Let's start talking about that episode. Can you describe some of the delusions that, that you were having leading up to it that led you to this incident? Yeah, well... As I said, um, the religion was a huge part of my life. So as I started, at some point, I started digging deeper into, you know, just the Bible, and I started to doubt it. And once I got to this place where I felt that the Bible wasn't real, that's when basically my mind started making up things to, to fill a void. And I started developing delusions that there was this uh, secret organization that was controlling world events. And so I felt that I had a need to go and expose this organization to the world. Can you tell us exactly what happened for our listeners with uh, taking over the airplane? Okay. So um, I'm living in Milwaukee. And actually, prior to the incident that led to my arrest in the United States, I actually had made an attempt to pursue this theory or this delusion of mine, and get down to the secret base I, that I believed was in Antarctica. Um, so I believed the, the secret base was in Antarctica. I bought plane tickets, had some weapons legally purchased, and I went to South America, and I was eventually stopped in South America. At first, they suspected me of trying to smuggle weapons, but they realized that I was just severely mentally ill, and they sent me back to the United States. This was prior to 9-11, to obviously. Oh, absolutely. How did you travel with the weapons to, to South America? Um, well, I declared them. I declared them at every port of entry. And that's one of the things that basically made it clear that I wasn't trying to smuggle. Because at every port of entry, I declared my weapons. They were in checked bags and packed properly according to you know airline regulations. But yeah, once I got to South America... And I started, you know, rambling about this secret base. That's when they realized that this wasn't what they thought it was. And they said, okay, let's just send this guy back. He's ill. I got back to Milwaukee. And at that point, I had kind of decided to leave. I still believed the delusions, but I figured I would just abandon them, just abandon the mission. Till about two years later, in 2000, something happened that um, basically I had started to interpret, you know, signs, things around me as clues that the government was coming to kill me because I knew too much. That's when I 
went back to New York and attempted to hijack a plane. That's what led to my arrest in the United States. The attempted hijacking, the plane was still on the ground, Yes, correct? Yeah. How did you get, I assume you had a, a gun that you obtained legally? Oh, yeah. Once again, once I got back to Milwaukee, I bought some more weapons legally. And then when I traveled to New York, um, at this point, this is when I stopped doing things legally. <laughs> I went to the airport and I basically rushed through security onto the plane. And uh, that's when I went to the cockpit told the pilot and co-pilot that they needed to get me out of the country because I basically needed to save the world. You say you just, it's probably hard for a lot of people to even picture this today because maybe a lot of our listeners are, are younger and don't even remember what airports were like prior to 9-11. Exactly. But security, you, you just kind of walked back, right? There was really no security, minimal, until you got on the plane, right? Well, they had a checkpoint where, you know, the security was checking bags, but these, they weren't even armed. And at this particular gate that I went to was just maybe 20 feet away from the plane. So I was basically able to just rush through. They attempted to stop me, but that's when I showed them my weapon and everyone backed away and I was able to run onto the plane. You're on the plane and you uh, are attempting to hijack the plane. How was that situation um, de-escalated? How did they uh, take you under arrest? Well, um, basically, they stalled me long enough for, you know, the SWAT team to surround the plane, to enter the plane. You know, like the negotiator was telling me he was going to get me the help I needed, which I, at the time, was hoping <laughs> meant that he was going to help me get to the secret base. But he really meant helped me get the, the mental health treatment I needed. You know, he, he managed to talk me down. I let the both the pilot and co-pilot go, and I was able to be arrested without, you know, further incident. They didn't rough me up or anything. They just, you know, told me to put my hands uh, behind my head. They arrested me, took me into custody, and questioned me. No one was harmed during the event, yeah, correct? Th thankfully, no one was harmed. Absolutely. Thank what charges resulted from this? Well, I was uh, charged with attempted aircraft piracy and about four other charges related to that. You know, weapons, having weapons in an airport, interfering with the flight crew. Okay. The key point that stands out to me as we start talking about this later. So you were charged, you faced multiple charges. Yes. My, yeah, there, there's no doubt that uh, my initial arrest was completely justified. Absolutely. Uh, I was a danger. They arrested me. And it was clear that I was mentally ill and they were, the first thing they did was send me, um, have me evaluated to assess my mental health. So you were never convicted of anything, right? No. What happens is, it took several years because at the time I was convinced that this threat was real. So even though I remember at one point I'm in the courtroom and we're having a competency hearing and my lawyer is saying that he thinks I'm incompetent. You know, the government is saying they think I'm mentally ill and the judge says, well, you're the only one in this courtroom that thinks you're not mentally ill. And um, it took about three years for me to finally start to recover because throughout the time I'm being constantly evaluated by mental health professionals and they're challenging my thought system. And eventually it started to sink through that this wasn't based on reality. 
So over the course of that that time period, those three years, was that the sort of treatment that helped you or was there anything else that, that helped you along the way? Well, that definitely helped me. That and the reality of my situation helped crack through the, um, the solutions that I had, uh, I was suffering from. And I was eventually started asking myself the same questions that just didn't have any real answers. And that made it clear that there was something very wrong with me. It was at that point when I finally decided that, yeah, they, everyone was right, that I was suffering from a mental illness. And um, in about September of 2003, that's when the government and we had basically a bench trial and I was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay. So in 2003, you were found not guilty, yes. but you were still detained. Yes. According to the procedure at that point, I was supposed to go through another evaluation and either be released or be sent to a state hospital. Instead of being sent to a state hospital, I was recommended and sent to a different federal prison. What state, when they sent you to a federal prison, what state were you in? North Carolina. North Carolina. Yes. So this is 2003. They send you to North Carolina into a state prison. So at this point in time, you'd already been in prison for three years. Is that right? Yeah. I was finally sent in about January of 2004. So from September 2003, when I was acquitted, till I'm still just waiting until January of 2004, when I'm finally sent to North Carolina to the next federal prison. What was your thought process at that point? Because you understood that you'd been acquitted. What, what was your mental status at that point? Had you, had you come to grips with everything and you were understanding your situation? Or Oh, yeah. I was definitely aware that I had been mentally ill. And I at that point, I was realizing that these were delusions I was suffering from. There wasn't none of this belief system was real. And so when I got to North Carolina, I'm being evaluated and I'm telling them, yeah, I realize that these were delusions. Um, I was mentally ill and, and what I did was very dangerous. I definitely, I was acknowledging that from basically from the moment I got arrived at uh, the federal prison. What sort of response were you getting from prison officials when you said that? They would acknowledge that that was the case, but they wanted to, you know, observe me further evaluate me further. So I would go through psychological testing. I would meet with them, you know, periodically. I was doing several things. Um, I was taking classes while I was in there because one of the things about North Carolina, where I was, Butner, North Carolina, they actually had outside people teaching college courses. So I was taking advantage of that. I was taking care of, you know, little groups that they had for therapy. So I was trying to make the best of the situation. You're in there. You're trying to better yourself. You're, you're feeling better. Right? Yes, you're feeling absolutely. better mentally. You're, you're understanding what you did was wrong. So from that point in, in 2004, how much more time did you spend in prison from there? Well, my official out date was August of 2015. Now, I say my official because from January of 2015 to August 2015, I was in the halfway house. So I left the actual federal prison system in January of 2015. Okay. And there were some appeals, right, to try to get out sooner? Oh, yeah. What happened there? Well, eventually, um, in 2005, I was actually recommended for release. The paperwork was sent to the court. I'm waiting for the release. Nothing's happening. 
And then a new panel convenes, a new risk assessment panel, and they say, oh, well, you don't like the prior recommendation. We're going to recommend you stay. So I'm like, okay, well, then it's going to be that panel's recommendation versus the first panel. But the court never has a hearing. So at this point, I have my lawyers um, contact the court and say, hey, um, we need a hearing. And the court doesn't respond. So I... A few months later, I have them do it again. Still no response. So I eventually file a petition for rid of mandamus with a higher court, and I send copies to my district court as well. And now they finally respond and say, okay, let's order a hearing. Oh, that, that's what you mean. Let's have a hearing. So they order a hearing to be held, and they order the government to transfer me to New York, because at this point now I'm in uh, Massachusetts. I'm in Devons. And they say they order me to be transferred from Massachusetts to New York to have the hearing. The government ignores the order. They don't transfer me. So I call my lawyer. I'm like, hey, what's going on? And uh, he says, oh, well, we're waiting for the hearing. I says, well, why haven't they transferred me yet? He says, wait, you're still in Massachusetts? I said, yes, I'm still in Massachusetts. And this goes on for at least a year and a half. And then finally, I have my lawyer file another motion. And finally, the court orders another hearing. And the government finally decides to transfer me. So in 2009, I'm finally transferred to New York. Once I'm transferred to New York, I'm putting together my experts to testify that there's nothing wrong with me. And uh, my experts include the former chief of psychology of Devon's. Uh, Massachusetts, where I was at, because he was the one that recommended me for release in 2005. And uh, he's reviewed the reports that were written after that, as well as evaluated me while I was waiting for the hearing in New York in 2009. So we have the hearing where the government sends their doctor, the guy that was currently commanding the evaluations in Devons versus my expert, the former chief of psychology. And um, at the hearing, their witness lies under oath about producing all of the records he was ordered to produce and subpoenaed to produce. And um, when uh, he was ordered to produce all of the records, and the judge says, uh, well, what about these records? He says, oh, I, I didn't bring those records. And that's when I say, well, you were ordered to bring everything. He says, oh, well, I thought that was outside the scope of the, the subpoena. Eventually, I managed to get a hold of these records. We continue the hearing because we actually, since those records weren't produced, we actually had to suspend the hearing for uh, the production of more records. So I actually uh, was able to produce more records, which includes records that at the same time as he was writing reports saying that I was mentally ill. These reports are from psychiatrists saying that I'm cured. I'm in remission. I'm recovered from mental illness. Ultimately, the judge decides to ignore my, the psychiatrist's reports, my experts' reports, and just says, okay, well, I'm going to take the word of this guy, even though he lied about producing records, tried to conceal the records from the court. I'm going to take his word for it. That's sickening. 
So do you think there was something nefarious going on there? Where I mean, I have no idea. You know, your story, this aspect of the criminal justice system, this is really the first that I've heard of, you know, a firsthand account of something like this. Not to go off topic, because I do want to hear the rest of your story. But do you think that is, is this something that, that you've heard of happening consistently with other cases like yours of, of mental illness and people trying to work through to get that release? Or can you just maybe give your opinion on that? Well, yeah, I definitely think it's happened before and it happens. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's happening now. I've seen it happen to a couple of guys I knew. You had one guy who was a friend of mine who was just with the doctor, the same doctor, was literally just making up stuff and would just send it to the court. And it's at that point when courts just have a habit of just taking the word for it, of taking, you know, whoever was writing the report's word for it and not digging any deeper, which could be problematic in, in cases I've seen where these doctors are saying, well, okay, this guy's a mental illness based upon behavior that's not indicative of mental illness. But a lot of times these courts just are just rubber stamping it. Maybe I think a lot of times in the court's eyes, they're like, well, we don't have the time to go through all this. So we're just going to peruse the report and be done with it, which is (laughs) still not an ideal situation, but it's what's the reality is, and a lot of times the lawyers for these guys are court-appointed and don't really feel like putting in a whole bunch of hours and a whole bunch of work into you know defending these guys. And they're like, hey, just let it go. Yeah, that's what it certainly seems like to me listening to this story. It seems that really it's inhumane treatment. Um, I think that's that's abundantly clear. And the judge seems to be relying on just one person's opinion rather than looking at an entire body of evidence that points to the contrary. Truly disgusting. Can you continue on and just uh, yeah. just, just explain how you went on to be released eventually? Well, once I lost that district case, I appealed it to the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and they upheld, because um, I appealed on several grounds, one that I was no longer mentally ill, Two, that this guy was an unreliable witness. Three, that his methodology didn't meet the Daubert standard, which is, you know, the a certain standard that expert testimony is supposed to meet. And so, you know, I cited all of these things. And I did this pro se, by the way. And the Second Circuit upheld the decision. And one of the grounds I had also tried to attack was on procedural, on the violation of due process, because... Once I had been recommended for release in 2005, the court was supposed to have a hearing instead of just keeping me in. Because even after that point, I was arguing that according to the statute, the explicit language of the statute, they can't deny me being released once a recommendation has been made without having a hearing. And so the court says, the Second Circuit says, well, yes, the statute says that, but it doesn't say just a recommendation. You would have to have a certificate of recovery filed with the court in order for that um, that segment of the statute to kick in. And then at that point, that's when I filed a petition for rehearing because I'm like, well, actually, if you look at the, the records, that was sent to the court. And I cited um, 
there was a segment in the records where it references that that paperwork was sent to the court, but the actual document was never produced. And once again, it was this doctor who was who didn't produce this document. And so I, once I challenged that in the petition for rehearing, the Second Circuit just ignored it and still refused to rehear my case. So at this point, I was really, really down about it. But I went back to Massachusetts, and I'm still dealing with the same doctor who's um, continually to just rubber stamp denials. But what I was doing at this point, I was continuing to stay out of trouble, continuing to deal with other doctors, other mental health professionals, and compile records where they were saying, okay, there's nothing wrong with him. With the doctor who was just rubber stamping things and just obviously it seems like just trying to keep you in prison. Yes. Did you have to have meetings with him one-on-one still as this fight for your release was going on? Yes. Well, because since he was the head of the risk assessment, I would have to meet with him once a year. And so now the procedure is supposed to be that I meet with him once a year with the other. It's not just him. It's um, a group of professionals, including my treating doctors. And they are supposed to give their recommendations and their information, and he's supposed to take that into consideration. And so one of the things I would go in there and challenge is, well, okay, my treating doctor is saying that I'm recovered from mental illness. Where are you getting the information that I'm not? Because if you only meet with me once a year, you know, and the person that sees me on a regular basis is saying there's nothing wrong with me, how do you justify, you know, and he would say, well, that's my opinion and that's what matters. And this is basically the stance he would take. And so my, my core of my argument, at the, the core of my, my process relied on the court to, you know, get me some outside evaluators to look at me. And at this point, I have a new judge. And so I'm, I'm sending paperwork trying to get an outside evaluator to step in and look at me. And this new judge is just ignoring all of my requests, all of my motions. And I'm having motions sent to my attorneys, and the judge is just ignoring them. So this is, things started getting really frustrating. But eventually, I came up with an idea. Because at this point, I'm working inside the prison, and I'm working in the mental health area. So I'm having very regular interactions with all of the mental health staff. And at this point, people are asking the question of this doctor, why is he still here? And they're like, there's nothing wrong with him. And so once other people started um, asking this question, I guess he began to realize he wasn't looking in the best light. And um, at one point, he decides to have me transferred. And this is actually after I petitioned the court to have my next risk assessment panel videotaped. I send this paperwork to the court, and I want to say within two weeks after I send the paperwork, after they send it back to me, saying that they're going to be scheduling, that it's under consideration, that's when he petitioned my order for transfer is put through. So I was transferred to a different uh, facility, and once I get to that facility, the first question they ask is, why are you here? (laughs) And I said, well, hey, that's the same thing I'm trying to figure out. And within six months of getting to that new facility, they had a um, risk assessment panel and recommended my release. 
Wow, that's an incredible story. Something that came to mind with all these preparing for all these uh, legal battles, all these appeals, how were you paying a lawyer at this time when you're in prison? Okay, at, at that point, I still have the court-appointed lawyers for me because once the, uh, the case is over, I'm unconditionally released. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm doing a lot of my legal work on my own. But every now and again, I'll have them put something just so that it's clear that this isn't just coming from me. Because a lot of times, courts will ignore pro se motions from defendants because they'll say, oh, it's just there's no point to honoring it. But I filed some of my own paperwork and I had the court appointed lawyers file some some paperwork on me on my behalf as well. That's an amazing story. So, I mean, essentially, for the most part, you'd have some help from some court appointed lawyers. But for the most part, you did a lot of this self, a lot of the research yourself. Absolutely. A lot of the preparation yourself. That is incredible. That's amazing. Let me ask you a question. So when you were released from prison after you're out of the halfway house and you have you know, most of your freedom back, you're in society, getting uh, released back into society. What was that feeling like after that long struggle? Can do, I mean, do you remember that day? Can you talk about that day? It didn't hit me like all then because even now I'm, the fight's still continuing because they still have conditions on me. And this is one of the things I'm challenging. I'm like, why? What conditions do they have on you? I have to see probation. They have me in therapy. And several of the things I'm challenging is that uh, they can't just issue conditions just because they feel like it. There needs to be a need. And based on the recommendation from the my release panel, the, the panel that uh, recommended my release, they said um, that I was recovered from mental illness. So there's no justification for mm-hmm. them to continue to uh, have me under these conditions. Do they have any sort of timetable on the conditions or are they just <laughs> open-ended? They are open-ended. And Wow. And it is a lot of it has to do with the judge I'm dealing with right now. That even though I was released, even though the, the panel at the my final institution recommended my release, the only reason she had put up a lot of resistance to hearing any of my motions or responding to any of my motions, and she had done some other things as well as you know stopping because I had filed a habeas corpus in a different jurisdiction, and she had actually created a different habeas corpus on my behalf without my knowledge or consent <laughs> that enabled them to send the habeas that I had filed in a different jurisdiction to her. The only reason I'm out now is because I actually had to file a disciplinary an action against it with the judicial council, second circuit judicial council against her. But as a result, she still is doing things that are, depriving me of, of getting my full freedom back. That's incredible. Can you just explain briefly to our audience when you say habeas corpus? Okay. What do you mean by that, filing a writ of habeas corpus? Yeah, um, well, the writ of habeas corpus is a petition to be released. It's basically means produce the body. And so I filed this when I was in Massachusetts before I was transferred. Once I filed in Massachusetts, I, I filed it with a, a court in Massachusetts saying, listen, there's no reason for me to be here. I'm not mentally ill. I have been mentally ill for about 10 years now. And being held in the prison is a violation of the law anyway. And once I filed this habeas, 
while the habeas is still pending, they transfer me to Missouri. And once I get to Missouri, at some point, she, the judge, creates a habeas corpus for me. A same, uh, it's a writ in New York. Now, I've never filed any paperwork to have this habeas in New York created. I didn't provide a filing fee because in order to petition for this writ, you need to put together a motion and you need to pay a filing fee. There's no filing fee. There's no paperwork in this habeas that she created for me in New York. But that's the basis on which now the court in the Massachusetts is able to send their habeas back to her. So she basically now stopped me, stopped anybody else from being able to intervene in reviewing the legitimacy of my continued incarceration. She essentially inserted herself. Yes. Which, I mean, is that is that even legal? I, no. I don't want to get into the, the legality of that. No, no, I, that it can't be. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how can she do that? And I didn't even know this had happened. I found out by accident once um, I had filed a, with the, the chief judge. I sent a letter to the chief judge, and the letter I got back referenced this habeas. I'm like, I don't even recognize this number, this docket number. And so when I looked up the docket number and I realized that, no, this isn't, I never filed this case. She created this case on her own and then just buried it. She created a habeas corpus for action for me and then did nothing with it. <laughs> so that's when I put together a letter for the Judicial Council of the Second Circuit and sent them a letter. That's when she approved my release without ever having a hearing, hmm. which is interesting because as for the length of time that they had me in and as much you know alleged controversy as it was supposed to be, uh, so whether or not I was dangerous for her to just say, oh, you can go. Because I've never set foot in her courtroom. I've never been in front of this the second judge who's been in charge of the case since I want to say 2011 or so. Yeah, I've never set foot in her courtroom. It's just an incredible story. I just have one more question. But first, well, I guess two more questions. First, I just want to ask you, have you thought about writing a book about this experience? Because Yes, yeah, so I'm actually be- in the preliminary process. I've started, I've had to scrap some and start over because it, it's tough, especially going, reliving my mental state in those early years. Mm-hmm. It's really emotionally taxing. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in the process now of, of writing that, that book. My last question would be, has your, your past, your uh, uh, being you know, detained and being detained as a, a federal prisoner for, for a decade, how has that impacted your potential employment, potential jobs, ability to get a job? Well, because I was never convicted, I'm able to fill out paperwork. And when they say, have you ever been convicted of a crime? No, I've never been convicted. But there's always that concern on whatever I do that I'm like, well, what if they Google me? And so since January of last year, I've managed to get um, jobs. It hasn't come up yet. And so I'm thankful for that. It's something that, that worries me. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just continuing to move forward because I'll apply for jobs. And um, I did take advantage of this program that gave me some job training and they helped me. And the people at this program know of my um, situation. So it helps to have individuals that need to give me advice that have dealt with getting people who are returning home to work. That's a huge help. Absolutely. 
I ask that question because I do know, you know, a lot of the people that I've interviewed in the past, people that have a, a felony conviction on their record, which you do not, you know, that felony will, will you know, travel around with them and, and, and weigh them down. And obviously, you know, you have to put that on a job application. So that's interesting. Since you don't have a conviction, that, that does help you. I want to thank you, Aaron, for coming on the show and for sharing this story. Thank you. Truly an absolutely unique story. I've never heard anything like this before. But as you alluded to, it sounds like there's a lot of people who are being impacted in a very similar way in the criminal justice system. Yeah, so it's a regular procedure for them to, instead of sending these people to state hospitals, to just keep them in federal prison. And I've seen some of these doctors, if they don't like you, they're just not going to recommend your release. And um, a lot of times the courts aren't even looking any deeper. They'll just take whatever these doctors say at face value, and it's really frightening. It is frightening. And the mentally ill people with uh, mental health issues are, uh, I know we talked about our episode of Felony Friday, I think it was episode number 24. We talked about people with mental issues being just thrown in solitary confinement yes. and just being left there. And for you know, 10, 20, I think in the episode 24, this one man was in solitary confinement for 36 years just completely sickening. And there's no one in the media, there's no you know mainstream news sources talking about this abuse. So I really do want to thank you, Aaron, for having the courage to come on this show and, and talk with me. And you know we do have a growing audience, so people are going to hear this and, and get the word out. So hopefully we can get some progress made here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, Aaron. And Hopefully you do end up writing this book. I want to wish you the best of luck writing this book and the best of luck with your uh, future legal battles to win them. And definitely, if when you finish this book, I want to have you back on to talk about it. Thank you. Definitely. All right. Thank you, Aaron. All right. Wow. What a story today from Aaron Comey. Just an incredible, incredible story. Aaron, obviously, he admitted himself that he broke the law when he tried to hijack that plane. He acknowledged that he deserved to face some consequences. However, he was never convicted of a crime. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity way back in 2003. And he, while he was in prison, he was able to recover from his mental illness. But he still remained in federal prison until January 2015. That is just inexcusable. There's no other words for that. I mean, that's more than a decade, more than a decade of just being trapped in prison just because a doctor or a handful of doctors simply didn't want to let you out. They essentially held him captive. And as Aaron said, the fight is not over yet. He's still fighting for his rights back and he's still fighting to get out of the probationary period that he's on pretty much open ended. So as far as I know, this is the first time that Aaron has shared this story. It's a heartbreaking story. But he's not alone in this fight. He's not alone. There's more people who are facing stories similar to this also. I mean, there are many other people in the prison system right now who are dealing with similar things, who are in prison because of mental illness. They weren't necessarily convicted of a crime, but they're being trapped there, basically being trapped by a doctor like Aaron was trapped by a doctor who would not approve his release. So hopefully, you know, this show does reach some ears and start to influence some people. Um, this is a topic that is not talked about a lot. We haven't talked about it a lot at, or at all on Felony Friday before talking with Aaron. So I'm glad to, you know, amplify this and get the word out. Hopefully, if you guys enjoyed this show, if you enjoyed hearing 
Aaron's story, hopefully you share this show as well. Because remember, guys, as listeners of Felony Friday, as listeners of the Lions of Liberty podcast, you guys have the power to grow this show. I mean, the only way this show is going to grow is by you guys sharing it, sharing it, subscribing, iTunes, Stitcher Radio. Please do that. That's a huge help. Leave a comment. Leave a nice rating if you enjoy what you're listening to. Also, think about joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. I mean, we talk about stories you know, similar to this, other criminal justice stories, all kinds of political stories. Every day there's people bringing up different things in the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook. Just go on Facebook's Punch Lines of Liberty Forum in the search bar, and it'll come up, and uh, we will approve you as quickly as we can. We will get you right in that forum. Make sure to also, if you have any ideas, you'd like me to talk about something, cover something, or interview a uh, guest on the show that you'd like to hear from, shoot that idea to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com, and I promise I will reply to you and get back to you, and hopefully either talk about your issue on the show or, uh, or bring a guest on the show. As always, everyone, thank you. Thank you so much for listening from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.